Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Medics Mind the Podcast. I want to welcome you to this edition. This is going to be a blog read. I uh, I wrote this post a couple of days ago, and uh, I wrote it in well, I wrote it in one sitting. <laughs> uh, I opened up the the laptop, the malap the malaptop. I opened up the malaptop. I opened up the laptop or my laptop, but not both. Um, I opened up the laptop and I, I looked at the screen and uh, the cursor was blinking, and I started typing. And when I was done, I had over a thousand words and a story had unfolded before me. And it was it was a story that is true. It's 100% true. It's something that I went through as a paramedic. And uh, I'll explain a little bit more to you after we enjoy some more of this lovely guitar riff. to Medics Mind the Podcast. Uh, as I said in the intro, this is going to be a blog read, um, and it's a piece that I wrote a couple of days ago, and it, it sort of came on the heels of a bad wake-up. Now, I know that bad wake-ups and bad sleep seem to be a common theme within my uh, within my podcast, but the thing is, it's a common theme within my life. Uh, I don't sleep well, and I generally don't wake up well. Um it's, it's something that has plagued me for a number of years, and uh, when I was using alcohol pretty heavily to uh, circumnavigate some of the uh, hurdles towards sleep, um, it got to a point where I was obviously over-utilizing alcohol, which is not a good thing and came with its own health uh, complications and risks. And um, since then, I, I have, uh, you know, went through a cessation of alcohol. I went through a rehab uh, program to you know, help me with, uh, with getting some sobriety and, uh, and deal with some trauma issues. And, uh, and I'm going through and, and dealing with trauma issues with my therapist, uh, slowly. It's, it's all about pacing with me because, uh, I have an issue with, with there's, there's this fantasy in my head that, that one day this stuff is just going to go away, that it will just leave me and I will be back to being a, a normal contributing member of society and I'll be able to sleep through the night Maybe I'll get myself a girlfriend because I'll become crazy enough uh, to, to think that's a good idea again. It's not. It's not a good idea. Um, and so the th- I, I know it's a common theme and I, I don't want to beat it to death. But the thing is, it's beating me to death in a way. The, you know, we need sleep as humans and, and we need sleep to be healthy. And I, I sadly, sleep for me is a, is a commodity. And when I do get a nice amount of sleep, it's generally an ephemeral sleep. It's uh, it's a it's a one-off. Um, so when I wrote this this blog post, it came on the heels of of a bad wake up, and by bad wake up, I must have had a dream, but I don't really recall it, and I'll get more into that in the actual blog post itself. But uh, to give you a bit of background on this, this is a call uh, that I'm writing about. It's a call that I went through as a paramedic, and uh, it's not so much that the call itself that this is a traumatic call. Uh, it's just that this is a sad call. And the biggest thing that I really hope somebody can take away from this, whether you're a first responder or not, uh, maybe more so if you're not, is that there seems to be this misconception that because we have a uniform and a vehicle and and we are trained to do a job, a certain job, and we show up and we go to these these calls, 
there seems to be this misconception that that we are somehow impervious to sadness, that the uniform protects us in a way. Um, one of the more common things that I hear all the time is, well, this is your job. You're, you're trained for this. You went to school for this. You know, you knew what you were getting into. And, and all of those things are true on the, on the surface, on, as, a, as a practical, uh, you know, factual statement. They are all true. I did go to school for this. I did know what I was signing up for. And I do have a uniform. And I, I am prepared for this. But the thing is, my uniform is made of thread, fabric, buttons. The same as your shirt, actually. And when I signed up for this, at no point during my sign-up phase was there a waiver giving away my humanity. So if I go to something that's sad, it's just sad. And I'm allowed to feel that, but, but the thing is, as a, as a first responder, I, I speak mainly from the paramedic standpoint because that's what I did. Uh, sometimes you go to sad things with a staccato in one shift. You go to one, then the other, then the other. And in this particular uh, post that I'm going to read for you, this particular instance, when this happened, it wasn't the only time in the evening that I would go to something sad and that I would have to say the words, I'm sorry. And that's that's what I wanted to talk about today was, I woke up saying the words, ma'am, I'm sorry. And... I, at first, because I didn't remember anything of the dream itself, I at first questioned whether or not, did I actually say this? Did, did these words actually come out of my mouth? But I, my throat felt the remnants of vibration that, yeah, you know what, I did. I, I, I did actually say this out loud. And, and this is, you know, those words, me speaking is what woke me up. And so as I was standing in the kitchen making a tea and and kind of mulling over what had happened, you know, my oration alarm clock, uh, so to speak, I, I began thinking, I began pondering, and I began remembering. I began remembering this gray old woman and her husband. And when I went back to my computer and I sat down, I just started typing. And I'm going to read for you what I wrote. It's called, appropriately, Ma'am, I'm sorry. I woke up speaking this morning. I must have been dreaming, but the imagery and sounds are not remembered. I suppose thusly, not important. What is clear and without contestation is that when I woke, I did so while letting slip spoken orations of hauntingly poignant apology. This unwitting impulse of speech was spoken to no one and yet intended for someone very specific. The first thing to greet the new morning were the words, Ma'am, I'm sorry. As a paramedic, one of the more intractable things that we have to do is admit defeat. For in our world, defeat comes in the form of death. Having to then turn and look a stranger in the eyes and mouth the words, I'm sorry, is a truly loathsome and piteous thing to do. It comes even more burdensome when you realize that we leave the dead behind. Paramedics do not transport the recently departed. We leave them where they lay. I was apologizing to an old woman this morning. A woman I had apologized to once before. After all these years, I remain unsure as to why the interactions that I had with her now late husband have stayed with me. But they have. I recall it just fine. The call had come deep into the evening. My partner and I sped through the arteries and veins of the city on our way to this aged couple's dwelling. 
Not knowing what we would face once inside, we readied for anything. The story would unfold as such. The couple were in bed together. The grey woman's husband rested comfortably within the embrace of their bed pillows, reading passages from one of his books. She sat lovingly next to him, doing the same. She heard her husband take a large inhalation of air before seemingly drifting off to sleep. She recalled smiling at the thought of her dear Robert having fallen asleep while reading. In her contentment, she continued on, allowing for her eyes to trundle over top of the lettering that was etched within the pages of her novel. When the satisfying weight of fatigue settled in, she placed her book down on her nightstand and rolled over to a position of comfort in preparation to allow herself to fall asleep. Feeling slight vexation at the dominant glow of Robert's bedside lamp, she requested politely that he dim the relucent ambience. Her pleas went unanswered. Robert, the light, please, she said. Robert said nothing. After many years of wedded bliss, they each knew how to annoy the other with effortless implementation. Thinking that Robert was having a bit of fun at her expense, or fearing that he had let the batteries on his hearing aids die again, she rolled into a seated position next to him and dug her sharp, loving elbow into his ribs so as to ignite him into action. Robert did no such thing. Robert didn't move. What she had heard was not a sleeping Robert's breath. It was his last. My partner and I, along with many other uniformed saviors of the night, would show up and stampede through their beautifully laid out apartment. The hollow clunking of footsteps could be heard singing throughout their home as we stepped over one another and medical supplies. She stood in the corner of their home and watched as countless sets of hands pawed all over her breathless Robert. One med. Two meds. Three. Compression after compression, and the pushing of one drug after the other until eventually, stillness, absolute cessation of movement, and breath. Robert was dead, and we had to concede to that defeat. And so we did, one by one, all together. There is a strong juxtaposition after running a code. At the start, an army of uniforms come rushing in. At the end, a sullen skulking of retreat occurs. It's a hell of a thing to see. One hell of a thing to be a part of. First, the firemen leave. Then the supervisor. All that remains is the medical shrapnel of a war lost, the bereft of the deceased, and... Me. The sorrowful medic in his watchful mind. Ma'am. I'm sorry. Have you ever watched someone's face fall apart from itself from indescribable suffering? I have. More than once. More than twice. More times than I care to recall right now. The grey woman started crumbling from within, and the descent of her soul dragged her to her knees. She was now introspectively begging into the ether of deaf ears and apathetic listeners. I have heard many people cry in my life. I have heard few that lamented in anguish quite like this old woman. She was like an injured wolf, separated from the pack in a desolate landscape. We were the moon, standing, watching. My partner and I took a knee on either side of this woman. I placed a hand atop of one of her shoulders, feeling the craggy landmarks of bone. Her body bounced spastically beneath my rested hand. I apologized once more for her situation. Ma'am, uh, I am deeply sorry for your loss. Her response was the elongation of her husband's name. Robert, spoken just above the level of a whisper. 
I stood to my feet as the deep ache in my knees refused me any more empathetic time beside the woman. When I did, I took quick inventory of the pictures that hung on the walls of their quiet little home. Younger versions of a couple in love boasted from rich, decorative frames throughout the place. It appeared as though Robert had been some form of a pilot in his youth, and from what I could tell, the grey old woman had spent most of her life on the farm. A sad irony came to me. The woman of the earth had fallen in love with a man from the sky. The sad part? Her gaze was now firmly cemented downwards. She knew where the flying man would now forever be, embraced by the earth that she so loved at one time, no longer soaring beside her. I always hated death notifications. In my opinion, they are one of the worst aspects of the job. I remember almost all of them, I think. I certainly remember the great woman. She knew why we were there. You could just tell. But she never spoke another word to us. She'd gotten up at one point, walked over to his side before collapsing once more. When the police and victim services came, we relinquished control of the scene and snuck back into the bleak cover of night. Our shift was not over. I would find myself saying the words, I'm sorry, again that same evening. When my shift finally ended, I found myself standing waterside by one of the lakes close to my place. I was still in uniform. The motivation to change at the station had left me by the time we had parked the rig. I stood and watched as the sun began to inch its way into the sky, a tea in hand and an angry sadness within. The water was calm and still, but my thoughts were anything but. I looked into the sky. It flaunted a pink and orange magnificence of early morning glow. When I exhaled, I could see the vapor of my breath. I did not feel the chill, though. Regretful, yes. Cold, no. I casted a meaningful glare towards the beatific unknown of the sky and said, Sorry, Robert. I tried, sir. I tried. By the time I had finished my tea, it had gone cold. I went home, went to bed, and slept for a few restless hours. Got up, got dressed, and did it all again. That was my job. It was my calling. And although at times it left me feeling sorrowful and sorry, it was my duty to try. And try I did. This morning when I woke, I said sorry. And now you know why. And you know who it was too. The man in the sky. And the woman of the earth. Ma'am. I'm sorry. Alright, so that was Ma'am, I'm Sorry. And uh, I, I wrote that, uh, like I said, in, in one sitting. I, I just sat down and began recording and, um, or be, began writing, sorry. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an all too common theme w with being a paramedic that we go to calls like that, that we experience calls like that. Um, with the aging population, obviously we go to a lot of, a lot of, you know, people that are aged out, you know, they, they die from old age, but it doesn't make it any less sad because you're walking into this family's home and you're walking in to talk to this person that's been married for 60, 70 years. Uh, and, and then you tell them, I'm sorry, but your loved one's gone. The remaining years of your life, you just have to kind of deal with it. You got to spend the rest of your life alone. And I know that that's the same message to anybody who loses a loved one. But when you're when you when you're like ninety and you kind of you know become dependent upon one another, 
uh, I can't imagine, truthfully, I can't even fathom what that would be like. Uh, I've lost loved ones, and I know the pain of losing loved ones, but I can't imagine what it would be like to lose sort of the last remaining person uh, of of your life, you know, apart from grandkids and, and children and stuff, that, that's a different sort of breed because they have their own lives as well. But you're living this life with someone and then you have these young, young guys, myself and, and, you know, my partner, whoever it may be, walk into the house, clunking around with muddy boots or, or whatever. And, and then turn around and say, I'm sorry, but your husband's dead. Also, um, we don't take dead bodies. So we're just going to leave him here until the coroner comes. So he's probably going to be here for several hours. And that's usually the case. And that's, it's the, the cause, because the coroner doesn't uh, work on the same hours that we do. There's not like an on-call coroner that, that is ready at a moment's notice. You know, it, it takes a bit for that uh, cog in the machine to get going. And uh, and that's not speaking bad about coroners. It's not. It's just a reality of the job. It, it, there's a there's a delay. And so generally we get the police to come and the police do the victim services and uh, and they they look after the the individual until such time that the body can be removed uh because we oh there was a car honking back there i don't know if you heard that but somebody's angry outside <laughs> i really wish i had a studio and i could just forget all these annoying people that live in this world um sorry i threw up my thought process here uh it's 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 hard it's it's really hard it's it's tough for 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 me to kind of wrap my head around that and it was it was tough when i was working to just go home and ignore that that overwhelming sadness because it is sad i mean i just i just told this person in this specific instance i told this woman that her husband sorry but you know robert is dead and he's not coming back and you know my partner and i have to leave now and um yeah, that, that was, it's hard. It's a hard, that's a hard way to make a living. You know, I, I love the job. I do, but there are, it, uh, so I, the thing that my partner and I used to say, it's, it's front row seats to the greatest show on earth, but sometimes that show is heartbreaking. And, and it's true because sometimes you see some great things. You see some things that, you know, uh, reinvigorate you with, uh, with relation to how you view humanity. And then there's times that you go and, and you just see the worst that humanity has to offer, the cruelty that we can, you know, bestow upon one another. And and then you see the overwhelming sadness in cases like this, where where you have just told this old woman that the man that she's loved for, you know, X number of years is is gone, never coming back, and he died right beside you. That's uh you know, that's, you can't, it doesn't matter what uniform you wear. It doesn't matter what training you have or what schooling you have. That's just sad. It's just sad. And it's, you can't ignore that. And that's, I think with, with post-traumatic stress, uh, being what it is for me, I don't think that this call was necessarily a traumatic call and a call that I need to process. I, I, I feel I've processed it quite well, but I think the reason I woke up saying, I'm sorry, I think it's just because, the things that I experienced in either in the healthy way or the unhealthy way have bled into, or the bad things, the, the iniquitous things have bled into those things. And they're all now spilled on the floor. I heard a great analogy once. Uh, and I, it might have been in Bellwood, actually, but somebody said post-traumatic stress disorder is like a locker. And every day you walk by that locker and you put something in it. 
and then you put another thing in it. And the, the entire time that you're working and facing traumas, you're putting you're putting things into it. And eventually that locker becomes heavy and over and, and over encumbered and it falls over. And everything that you've put inside of that locker comes spilling out. And now it's all over the place on the floor. And you it's your job to pick that locker back up first and foremost. Then you have to fix that locker. Make sure it's functional again. Once you fix that locker, then you got to start picking up those things that are on the floor and you got to put them back in there, but you got to put them on the right hangers so that it doesn't become overweighted and doesn't fall over. And I think at this stage of my post-traumatic stress disorder, I got shit on the floor, folks. I got shit on the floor. My locker's broken. I'm, I'm working on it. You know, now finally with being sober, I'm able to actually work with my therapist and work on the things that I need to work on in order to get better. And I, for the first time, I think maybe in forever, I have hope that I can get better. And I feel like I will get better. It's just going to take some time. So when I woke up saying, ma'am, I'm sorry, it's not because I'm traumatized by having to deliver death notifications. It's not that they're traumatizing. They're just really sad. And generally, I'm a sad guy anyway. I think I've been sad my entire life, to be honest. I mean, my brothers and sisters and I didn't have an easy upbringing. You know, my father was a horrible man. You know, the the lasting legacy I have of my father is a scar on my back that's just, you know, maybe about six inches long, and it's from when he hit me with a, a belt. And uh, and he hit me with a belt because I had made my mother angry because I, I couldn't read. I, I was getting stressed out. My mom was getting angry at me, and I, I couldn't read. I was learning to read in school, and I, I just wasn't doing well and uh, I got in trouble and I got sent to my room. I don't remember all the intricacies of, of how that I may have given my mom attitude. I don't know. But my dad came home and hit me with a belt and uh, I have a permanent scar from him. And that's one of the more innocent things that that fucker did. And and then my mom dying by way of suicide, but growing up with her was, was complete. I mean, she had cancer, depression, and she was not the, the most, you know, compassionate lady at times. You know, she was sick. She was sick, so she had her own mental health demons, and, and so unfortunately, that bled out onto us as well. And we didn't have an easy life, is what I'm saying. And uh, and so I, I don't know that I've ever really been happy. You know, sure, I've smiled, and I can tell jokes. And uh, I jokes, for me, I think, has be, was more of a defense mechanism. It was a way to fit in with the world of the normals. I think that was the only way that I, I figured out how to fit in was to be somewhat funny, somewhat sarcastic and aloof. And and uh, and it's just now, at this stage, 35 years old, almost 36 years old, that I'm starting to decode myself. And it's a fucking process, and it's exhausting. And there's times that I don't want to do it anymore. There's times I'd rather just say, fuck it, I'm just going to get a dishwashing job. I'm never going to work as a paramedic again. I know that. Fuck it, I'll just work in a goddamn dish pit and I'll drink my face off until such time is that my body just gives out. Those thoughts do come to me, but then there's the other thoughts where, you know, I, I've i been given this gift of life, and I need to live it, and I want to live it. So I'll, writing stuff like this, whether it's really traumatic or whether it's just kind of a sad memory or whatever, it's therapy for me. It's It's me starting to look at those things on the floor outside the locker and figuring out how to put that locker back together. That's what it's doing. And that's what writing and doing this podcast and everything is doing for me. So 
that's what this post was about. I woke up incredibly sad because although I didn't remember the dream and I didn't relive the dream, I woke up hearing the words, ma'am, I'm sorry. And I knew in an instant who it was to. I knew exactly who I was talking to. I knew exactly what I was apologizing for. And I felt that sting of sadness, the same as I did on that night, the same as I did when I was standing around the lake, having my tea, getting ready to go home. It is sad. You know, watching somebody disintegrate into absolute anguish is a horrible image to hold as memory. It's a burdensome set of images to hold behind your eyes. It really is. And in in writing it and sharing it with people, I know that there's people out there that have similar experiences shared experiences and different experiences, but they can relate to these things. And in turn, you know, I, I feel like in, in doing that, in being open about it, maybe I can motivate somebody else to be open as well and get the help that we need. Because that's, that's what I'm doing. If I wasn't, if I didn't find the therapist that I found, ah, folks, I don't know where I'd be. I don't, I have no idea, but I don't have to think about that. I can just think about getting better. Because I have that luxury now. Sobriety has given me a great outlook on where things can go. So with that, with that, uh, you know, ending, um, that's what I wrote. Ma'am, I'm sorry. That's what the title of the post is called. It can be found over at medicsmind.com along with all my other blogs that I've written. I'll continue to do these things as well as break up the uh, the macabre nature of this uh, podcast with some stories called Not So Serious. Uh, there's four installments of that series so far, so feel free to check it out on anchor.fm slash emeticsmind. Anchor.fm slash emeticsmind. It can also be found on Spotify uh, or anywhere that podcasts can be heard. Uh, and if you want to go and read my blogs ahead of time, please feel free to go do that at emeticsmind.com. And uh, until then, I'm going to lead us out with this lovely guitar riff, and I will talk to you guys on the next episode of Emetics Mind the podcast. Be well and keep talking to each other.